Welcome to the Career Zone podcast, where each episode we spend some time focusing on something that's on students' minds right now. I'm your host, Rachel, employability and careers consultant with the University of Exeter. You can catch up on all of our episodes by doing all of those subscribing and following things. We're on Spotify and iTunes. Today we have the lovely Dr Faye Bird with us. Faye is a lecturer in law here at Exeter and she's also worked as a law lecturer at Lincoln University and is no stranger to Exeter University because she did her own law degree here. So welcome Faye. Thanks Rachel, that was a lovely introduction, thank you and thanks for having me, thanks for having me on your podcast, I'm very excited. Yes, me too, you're very welcome and I know it's going to be a really insightful discussion for our students. So with that in mind, maybe we could just start by you telling us a little bit about what your role as a, a law lecturer here at Exeter involves. Yeah, of course. It's interesting the title lecture I find is actually a bit of a misnomer. Lecturing itself, being in the lecture theatre, delivering lectures, it's really a relatively small part of the job. So I think people assume that that's what we're doing all the time. It's unclear why we're called lecturers really with that in mind. Just a small part of the job, but it's certainly what springs to people's minds, I think. Teaching is, of course, an important part of the job. And I would say, certainly for my workload, it's about 40% allocated to teaching. Um, You know, so that's anything from sort of design, module design, um, you know, so that includes sort of researching around the topics, writing, delivering the lectures, design. So that's, you know, important for module design. But that extends to, you know, what are we going to ask the students to read? What do we want to discuss with our students? What do we want them to think about for assessments, that sort of thing? And of course, we've got, you know, seminar planning and running, marking, offering drop-in sessions, meeting with students, offering support, that kind of thing. Um, Lots of things that, you know, I'm sure your, I'm sure our listeners will be somewhat familiar with. You know, teaching our, our wonderful students is a big part of the job. And really, that is what gives a kind of university its life force. So it's a, it's a really fun and kind of dynamic part of the job. But, you know, universities aren't just about teaching, you know, they um, really they're about pushing frontiers of knowledge and contributing to society through advancing you know, what we know of the world. And that sounds a bit daunting, the sort of research side of it. That's a, a big mantle to carry. But as academics, we you know tend to carve out our own research specialisms and try our best to sort of advance those fields. So about 40 percent of my job is spent researching around certain legal issues and challenges research I'm sure we'll discuss in later detail. My research looks at sort of feminist methods, feminist theories, gender theories, and applies those to to legal questions. So research is really crucial and it's sort of where staff disappear to, where we retreat to, I guess, when we're not really in the classroom. Many lecturers, academics, they spend their time developing their research portfolios. And of course, that does feed back into our teaching, too. You know, that's um, we like to think of ourselves as, you know, research led teaching and they're kind of two halves of the same coin, I suppose. 
so yeah, so you've really got that kind of teaching and research combination. Um, you do also have administrative roles and, and that could be quite varied. So, you know, around 20% of my time is on administrative roles, which, you know, really important. It, it sounds dull, administrative roles, but and it is board label. But for me, my administrative roles is around EDI. So that's, you know, equality, diversity and inclusion in the law school, being a part on the committee, um, the EDI committee and also the school's widening participation officer which is actually obviously in that role is where we met so um, you know that's yeah. thinking about making the law school more accessible more open to um, all manner of people from all manner of different backgrounds so it's a, a great addition to my research and my teaching those kind of roles they could be many though you know some people look at admissions some look at recruitment and and that sort of thing so, you know, it can be diverse and also lots of academics at the law school will be doing lots of different things. Some will be more teaching intensive or, or some will be more research focused. Some will be like me, a combination of the two. So there's, there's lots of ways, I guess, to be a lecturer. And lecturing is, as I say, a small part of the job, but fun a bit of it. But yeah, just a smaller part of it, actually. It's, it's interesting to ask the question, isn't it? What does a job role actually involve? Because so many job roles, the titles, they don't actually reflect, do they, what yeah. what you're actually doing? I mean, that's a great example, law lecturer. You can drop a lecturer in a, a lecture theatre. But as we've just found out, there's so much more to it, isn't there? And it sounds like a, a really varied role, a very busy role. And yeah, it's great to get the insight into what, what it actually entails. Yeah, it's true. And the, the lecture model is something that I think is quite a traditional mode of teaching in universities. It's what people expect from universities, the lecture theatre. And sometimes we do need to think about whether it's actually all that effective. You know, sometimes we might want to try to make those spaces a bit more interactive, you know, instead of sitting and listening and um you know, taking that information in, it can be a huge amount of information. So sometimes we try to interrupt the lecture with questions and try to break up the potential monotony of hearing my voice. You know, that could be kind of <laughs> Don't boring for me and for them too. <laughs> you know, it's a shame. But yeah, it is, there's a lot more going on and, um, you know, lecturing is fun, but so are seminars. So, so are, um, yeah, having one-to-one, -one, you know, dissertation supervision sessions. They're all great ways, I think, of um, of teaching. So, yeah. Yeah, we need, we need that variety, don't we, I think, in yeah. our job roles. And, and your role obviously provides that variety. So I, I wanted to ask as well, sort of I'm going off on a, diff a different point here, but I was also interested to know, what made you decide to study law in the first instance? Because as I said at the beginning, you studied here at Exeter. You did a law yeah. degree. So if you sort of take yourself back to when you were thinking of, you know, what degree to do, what, what was it that made you study law? Yeah, it's well, it's, it's actually just a very uninteresting answer. <laughs> to say It's just not that. It's not um, particularly exciting or anything like that. I think it's just... It's a story I've heard lots before, you know, people are just kind of interested, aren't they, in uh, law and legal processes and, you know, criminal law in particular. It's all very glamorous, I guess, or at least, you know, that's the outside looking in. Yeah, I guess really 
it is just more to do with that kind of glamorization of the legal profession in sort of cultural media. You know, I love the I love the um the sort of cold cases that you know on um documentaries and yeah, I was a bit of a I went through a bit of a kind of case Scarpetta, um Patricia Cornwell, Cromwell kind of books. You know, I'm sure actually probably few of the listeners <laughs> will have come across those books. They're quite but maybe I don't know. Um, no, I, yeah. I think you're right. I think what what we see in the media, it's you know, there's so many dramatizations, isn't there, on the television? Yeah. Like you say, fiction books. Uh, no, I think they will say. I think a lot of the listeners will identify with what you're saying. You yeah. thought that it sounded really interesting because of that representation. Is that is that what drove it? Yeah, I think so. And you know. Sometimes I, I like to try to give a sort of post hoc, rash, you know, reasoning, uh, try to make myself seem like it was something deeper at play, some sort of drive towards injustice. I don't know. I, I think maybe I was just very much enthralled by the, the drama. And, and when I started doing it, because this was when I was picking A-levels, I picked Laura's an A-level and and I just really enjoyed it, actually. Obviously, when you actually start studying it, it's, it's nothing like that. But I still really enjoyed it. And I still do think it's interesting to think about how sort of saturated these forms of media are with, with law, essentially, you know. And I try to occasionally draw on sort of literary references, Shakespeare, even more contemporary stuff like Yanagihara and, you know, trying to demonstrate just how fundamental law is in society and and really just in the human condition I guess again probably not in my mind when I was a 16 year old <laughs> probably not my kind of reasoning but you know looking back on that with this sort of hindsight I guess it's it's unsurprising that myself along with hundreds of thousands of others are sort of taken and driven to studying law it's, it's not really surprising I suppose I think it's it's good to hear that though isn't it it's good to people are always interested in I guess people's career journeys so it's good to hear isn't it I bet lots of lots of students can resonate with what you're saying it was interesting to hear you say that of course you said of course the reality of studying law isn't like that that was <laughs> that was interesting and and I just sort of on that note really I just wondered what your experiences of studying for your degree were like and if you experienced any challenges yeah. So, yeah, I've, I guess I've, I've spent quite a lot of time thinking in, about law and studying law. And I guess you could say, you know, as a discipline, I'm sort of I'm sold. <laughs> you know, I kind of enjoy it. I, I really benefited from studying law um, as, you know, but of course, it isn't all you know, great, you know, there's parts of it that can be difficult. And as you've pointed out, I am extra law school alumni. So I've got to be a, a bit careful here. You know, don't want to be upsetting everybody, but not every journey is 100% sunny all the time. You know, and, and I might have been just a bit unlucky at times, you know, I guess I often found myself a little bit out of place with the groups I might have found myself in. You know, I met um, a few really lovely people on my law course. This is my undergrad. But, you know, I also found myself often in sort of, say, seminar contexts or, you know, going to the court, for example, the Crown Court and, and watching cases. And I sometimes found myself really around a, a number of very financially privileged people and they bonded over lots of experiences that were just incredibly far removed from my own. I just didn't have that shared sort of background mm. or upbringing. 
and I had to work a lot throughout my first and second year. So, you know, I worked at sort of EDF Energy, I worked at, in, um, you know, cafes and, you know, my personal favourite being an extra alarm is Arena Nightclub behind the bar. But uh, I think it's not you, not Arena now, Unit 1, I think it's yeah. called now. Yeah. But yes, and, and that really does take a lot of, a lot of focus and a lot of your, I suppose, your capacity, your emotional capacity, your ability to really concentrate. It really does, it can be really affecting. Once I got into my third year, I I really, I really tried to save. So I did a bit of saving during that time, so I didn't have to work in my third year. And the difference was was really quite you know striking, really, once you could, once you could bracket work, once I was able to bracket off work. So, you know, I really do empathise with students who are also having to take undertake work during their studies. I know that could be really difficult to juggle. And another challenge, which I think is kind of worth mentioning, because I think people have certain perceptions of academics and what academics do. And, you know, but I was I, I am dyslexic. I was diagnosed with dyslexia relatively late in my education, not until college really I had a a lovely English literature teacher who suggested that I maybe need to think about being tested and and I'm really you know pleased I did because yeah I was able to seek the support that I needed and you know it can be very overwhelming the amount of reading that we have to do and and as a as a student as a as a academic as well so having that diagnosis and and being able to identify some of my not weaknesses but where I'm perhaps you know going to be a bit slower say thinking about developing strategies to cope with that and and as I say seeking support so it is I think important that people seek support for neurodivergence I mean academia is increasingly finding itself recognizing and celebrating what people with neurodiversity have have contributed already and continue to contribute to academia but yeah, it might be, I don't know, for some students, maybe it's surprising that we, that there are lots of, lots of people in the, in academia who are neurodivergent. So it shouldn't be something to feel that held back by, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. So as I say, lots of people, lots of willing to support. So that's crucial, really. Yeah, I think that's really, really important point to mention because you know probably like many people I have an understanding I don't know what what it's like to be dyslexic but I have an understanding of it and when I hear you say it I think goodness that's amazing you know because I perceive again with academia I don't work in it but as an academic I perceive that there will be a vast amount of you know reading written work that you'll do so I, I yeah I just think that you know that's amazing and it shows that if people have similar issues or similar I guess barriers that you can access these careers. Yeah, absolutely. The support can just really be quite life changing, you know, just knowing, I mean, even just knowing about it, having that diagnosis and thinking a bit more about the way you personally function, your brain functions, you know, that can be really helpful. Thinking about how to manage it. And listening to people who also have gone through that and listening to how they manage it, yeah, can really be such an important thing to do, really helpful. So, yeah, I would recommend that people think about whether they are able to access, you know, whether they and whether they are really accessing that support, whether they are reaching out, because sometimes it does take a bit of 
you know proactivity on our part you know to mm. let people know and to to ask but it's something that is really worth doing yeah really really good advice there I think and as I was listening to you talking there about some of the challenges during your degree I was thinking I wonder when Faith thought oh, I might quite like to to be a law lecturer or be an academic you know what during this I'm guessing at some point during the journey something happened you know I wondered if you could explain that a little bit yeah I mean academia wasn't anything I'd really heard about um, I'm sort of first gen university student in my family so you know academia wasn't something I really knew was a possibility and I, I actually recall one day I was in an EU law lecture and the lecturer asked you know looked out to the sea of LLB undergrads and said you know does is anybody thinking about pursuing a career in academia and it was like you know yeah it was yeah, fairly silent after that a bit of a tumbleweed moment you know and uh and I, I think she was shocked but I at the time had no I I'd never even thought about that it wasn't even something I I'd even was even on my radar and I, I can't speak for the others in the room but it was certainly some not something that I'd thought about I remember going in in this is again in my undergrad having careers lectures and hearing what a sort of PhD entailed and you know even a master's dissertation you know they had 20,000 words on the board a PhD thesis 100,000 words I thought well that's that's not for me <laughs> you know that's not <laughs> going to be something I'm going to be up to I don't think but yeah I think really in third year when I started actually I had much more options you know we started we start picking our own modules and dissertations really that was that was really important for me a real sort of yeah change in my thinking I guess when I I was able to pick a research project develop a research project think about what I wanted to spend you know that academic year focusing on on my own with a supervisor of course I had support but you know it was the sort of freedom of that I think that really resonated with me and going through the law library still not really having a clue what I wanted to do but flicking through books in the law library and, and I remember I found a, a book that was talking about you know um, legal responses to World War II talking about sort of the Nuremberg trials and there just being a brief mention of the the amount of women who you know had been victims of sexual violence during the conflict in various areas various yeah by various perpetrators and just and then the mention that there was not a single case brought under the Nuremberg tri uh, tribunals you know that there was no legal repercussions there was no action I guess no legal recourse and so that I found that really shocking and that was where I began thinking about armed conflict the experiences of women and children in armed conflict and thinking about what the law was doing here or what it wasn't doing or whether it was being used or why was it just you know dead letters on paper so anyway that kind of got me really interested and and I think that's it's about being interested you know and having that focus and that's where I found legal research was something that really sort of clicked with me and my supervisor was incredibly supportive she she suggested I think about 
pursuing a, a master's and that sort of thing. So it kind of, I guess, stemmed from that, really, um, having that independence and that freedom to develop my own research project. That's where people get passionate about things, I guess, you know, when they have that freedom. Well, it certainly was the case for me anyway. Yeah, it's not, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm sure that's a common thing. It sounds like you developed a real passion for this, an interest in this particular topic. And then it sounds like there were some key people as well, like your supervisor, who maybe got that experience and, you know, could, I guess, that foresight to say that a master's might be a good, a good option. And it's just those conversations, isn't it, from people in the know. And I guess I don't I was thinking when you became interested, were you thinking back to what was it your EU lecturer said, EU law lecturer said, is anybody interested in a career in academia? Did you think back and think, oh, maybe? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, coincidentally, my my dissertation supervisor was the EU lecturer. Oh, I see, I see, yeah. So um, I have had to thank in many ways. (laughs) She's, yeah, she was um, incredibly supportive and, and, building those kind of relationships, building that rapport with her was, yeah, really made me think that actually this is something I could do. You know, I I didn't know academics before and, you know, I'd been surrounded by them during my studies, I guess, but I didn't really know what they did, I guess, which is why I think podcasts like this are really helpful for, for many people to hear a little bit more about what the role actually entails. But yeah, having frank conversations with academics can be really insightful and can help you realise whether this is something you want to do or not. So yeah, she was a very supportive person throughout, I think, for me. Yeah, and building your network is so important, isn't it, I think, in any career decision. And that's just a a really good example there. So yeah, so say you've really realised those ambitions and you are working as an academic now. And I know, I hope you don't mind me saying, but you've got a very impressive portfolio of academic qualifications, your degree, master's and and PhD. And I wondered if you could share what the experience of completing those qualifications was like, you know, for, for any of our students who are thinking of going on to do a similar thing. Yeah, so obviously I mentioned my supervisor, she really encouraged me to pursue a master's and I took a bit of time out I didn't go straight into a master's I did I mean I you know it was a partly mostly a financial thing really I didn't really have the resources to jump straight back straight into a master's program you know I don't think postgraduate loans were kind of a thing so we had to you know do a bit of saving and and you know sometimes things you get side sidetracked don't you and you know you might have aspirations and ambitions, but yeah, I certainly had a bit of a break between my undergraduate and my master's. But I I knew that once I did decide to go back and do my master's, that I was going to be kind of all in. So I turned up super keen, almost embarrassingly keen with this sort of written PhD proposal on the first day of my master's, which is just embarrassing to admit, you know, because there's just no need really. It's just over over the top. <laughs> and I, on the first day, emailed the head of school. At, this is at Reading. So I did my master's and my PhD at Reading. And I um, emailed first day, bright eyed, bushy tailed, emailed the head of law school uh, and just said, I really want to do a PhD. Here's my PhD proposal. And like, it's just 
kind of embarrassing you know shows that I really had no idea how to apply for a PhD I had no idea how actually academic structures work you know this is not what you do you don't just go straight to the head of school um anyway I did and bless her she was incredibly generous and met me and chatted with me and talked through her options so uh, just a, another example of just an incredibly supportive person who really helped me along the way get me on the right track but you know that that kind of I guess that being that keen they I was well looked after I guess you know they um they helped me with my proposal my proposal I should say was just something I you know I just googled what what needs to go in a PhD proposal and I just you know and I just ran with it and um it wasn't too bad but it needed tweaking obviously and you know and and isn't that's when so during that year of that master's I was really working on my proposal in the background and trying to get funding for it. That's often what we have to do if we want to do a PhD. Applying for a PhD, I should say, isn't isn't quite like applying for a master's programme. For a start, you have to do a proposal. You have to demonstrate that this puzzle, this, this question, this issue, this pressing concern is you know, worthy of spending years of your life on, essentially. And you've also got to try and convince other people that it's it's worth the time and worth their resources, their energy. They have to be motivated by it too. And some people can self-fund. The majority of people need to apply for funding, really. And so funding can include funding of fees. Some are just fees, but some also offer living stipends. So um, I was really fortunate because I did receive funding, but it is a very competitive field. Well, it's, it's very competitive to get funding, unfortunately. There's just not a lot of pots of money around and lots of you know, people want those pots of money. So it is something to be taken quite seriously, that process. And of course, if you do have funding, it's a good reflection on you and your research because it shows that also other people are willing to back and support and fund that project. So if it, if you are thinking about doing those sorts of qualifications and you really do think that you want to do a PhD, you need to start thinking about that quite early on, thinking about who your supervisors might be, who's going to give you the support that you need to do that research, what kind of institution is a good support supportive environment for you, for example, that does that institution have particular specialisms? You know, are they renowned in the field for, say, you know, gender research, for example? You need to start thinking about those and you need to start thinking about who you're going to target for funding. Where are you going to apply? I was funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. So that's a UK research institute. So there's seven councils, basically, but only two are really suitable for legal research. Arts and Humanities Research Council and the Economic and Social Research Council, so the ESRC. So they're sort of related, that's kind of government funding, I guess, um, or at least it comes from sort of government funds. But there's a number of other sources of funding. You have the Leverhulme Trust, Wellcome Trust, or there's other smaller charities that offer pots of money for research. So, you know, you've really got to be vigilant, look out for those pots of money and see if you can you can um, develop a project that aligns with what that council or what that research centre is wanting. What kind of work do they want to fund as well? You know, you've got to kind of meet in the middle a bit.
so I was very fortunate I had my fees paid and a living stipend and what also came with that sorry I hope this isn't too much of a digression this is kind of the the nuts and bolts of it and and how it works I guess in in many ways but having that funding allowed me to do lots of other things okay it's very rare that people just do PhDs alone now with that funding I was able to apply for more money to do lots of different things so I presented at conferences in say Washington DC in LA in Australia I attended research methods summer schools in Budapest it was great and coincidentally where I met my where I met another PhD student who I've now been in a relationship with so for five years an unofficial perk of academia the dating scene you know yeah. yes <laughs> um, <laughs> nerds are your thing um I probably shouldn't joke about that anyway no, totally... I, I mean that's the thing isn't it this is what happens in life you know your career wow. you were realizing your career sort of ambitions doing all these amazing things and you've met your you know your now your future partner my nerd yeah so you know you do you do lots of things during the PhD as well and you know I coordinated a gender sexuality research network which was a lot of fun just bringing together loads of postgrads chatting all things you know gender and sexual all lots of interesting research they were doing and and you know another support that I had well the the funding body I had also supported me doing six months work with um as a policy advisor so with the civil service so I did sort of three months with the cabinet office and then three months with the home office and that involved research around accessing child sexual support services looking at trust in the criminal justice system data ethics health inequalities in prisons you know loads of stuff basically lots of stuff and to top it off you know I pursued publications as well and you know part of why I'm stressing this is because as I say few people just do a PhD alone now they are seeking lots of opportunities you know and and these are the it does help it it helps make you competitive but it's also part of training to become an academic right all of these things help you develop the skills that you need to have to be an academic and I taught of course I taught throughout throughout starting from day one of the PhD I was teaching criminal law at Reading and gender and law as well there's lots to do it's a balance because you don't want to neglect your thesis those chapters aren't going to write themselves but you also you know should be thinking about developing as a well-rounded academic a well-rounded researcher and as a teacher somebody who's thinking about policy as well and somebody who's thinking about communicating their research to the field you know having that dialogue with other academics working on similar issues and that's really why you know, we should think of the PhD not as just this 100,000 word thesis that you need to get done. You need to be thinking about it as a as a training programme. And it's not just about words on paper or the viva at the end, which everybody is incredibly terrified about that, that uh, exam at the end of the of the thesis. But yeah, so it's a, it's a long process. I mean, I'm sure you can gauge from that that it is a long process. It's a big commitment time commitment resource commitment you know it's um something to not undertake lightly I, I guess um I mean I think that's true of most professions you know you always need to really think about whether it's for you 
and ultimately you know can you find that area can you find that project that you really do want to spend the time on when I, I I hadn't actually finished my PhD when I got my first lectureship at Lincoln so I was then doing my lectureship position there whilst also trying to finish the thesis and that is you know that's a stressful balancing act to do you know and 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 so it's is something to to really think about it's not um necessarily I mean it's great there's lots of great things to it but it also can be quite full-on you know I guess mm, I, I could hear yeah I could hear that I could hear it was I could also hear an amazing amount of passion and kind of commitment and just all those you know it just was really nice hearing you reflect back on all the amazing experiences you had during your PhD but I was also thinking that's a, such a, a massive commitment isn't it and you as well as you must have to have some of the skills that you probably use now you know commitment resilience the ability to balance you know mul- multiple workload uh, multiple tasks you know it really I think that came through you can't take on that decision lightly it's a big commitment and a lot of work as you're explaining there to get the funding to do it in the first place yeah and I think that is really important the funding I I, I mean as I say you know some people do self-fund and and that is an option for some it certainly wasn't an option for me and it certainly wasn't an option for many people that I that I've known in the PhD community most people are applying for funding they're they're pushing they're getting those getting research councils they're getting research centres to to support and back them and and it's through those funding schemes that you are often able to do the things that certainly I was able to do and really going back again you know for me to have gotten the funding in the first place I really was incredibly well supported at Reading I had once I'd been in touch with the head of school, it's not a great strategy doing that, by the way. You know, I shouldn't suggest everyone just suddenly joins and starts bombarding poor Claire in the, at the law school here with emails and proposals. But, you know, reaching out and asking for help, basically showing that interest, showing that that you want to do this and that you understand what it entails and, and you're ready for that. And many people don't get funding first time round. Some have to go back some have to apply again and as I say it's quite competitive I mean I think even for that you know I think I had a sort of interview panel of like seven academics you know it could be quite a rigorous process and lots of people don't get the funding many people get it after quite a few rounds of applications and that's fine lots of the time it is it is luck you know sometimes it's who's on the panel who's interested in this area that you've identified and and have you got the best team is the funding body even the best body for that project you know there was some concern from my panel for example that the AHRC maybe wasn't the greatest fit for it like to think I evidently convinced them otherwise in the in the interview but you know trying to get all of these issues to align trying to get the specialisms of your proposed supervisors to align your institution to align and and the potential funding body trying to get those all to align that can do an awful lot but I wouldn't have known that without the sort of support I had at Reading so again 
speak to academics really speak to the academics let them know of your plans and they're very keen to help and they're very keen to talk about academia as you can tell academics love talking about academia so they'll they'll chat for hours with you apparently I think it's so important isn't it again saying it's about building your network isn't it and getting that support from people who are already in you know in this case academia in in you know any whatever profession it is it's really important isn't it growing that network because you certainly can't can't do it on your own. I think we've we've covered some of it there but I just wondered if there was anything else you wanted to say in terms of tips for any students who are interested in pursuing a career in academia in addition to what you've already said? Yeah I mean it is a long journey it can take a very long time so as I've said I'm just reiterating but you know really think about it can you focus on that topic for a long period of time okay you know and and this isn't to say that it, you need to have some internal calling for academia or some burning passion for a single niche research topic it, it doesn't have to be quite that extreme but you know you need to think about whether you can turn your attention to a particular issue and really focus and just sit with those objectives for a while i think it's very abstract but once you're actually going through the motions you realise how long, I mean, goodness, how long have I spent reading Security Council resolutions? Like, just hours and hours. I just, I bet, I'd hate to add it all up, really. Um, so, you know, think about that very seriously, because it is a, is a very long process. And I, I definitely go back to finances and just stress that, because it's a big financial commitment too. Even if you do get funding, it's not a huge amount. You know, it can be say you have your fees paid for, UKRI, so the UK Research Institutes, they generally set the living stipend amount, which all the other funders tend to follow. So for mine, it was around 16k a year. And that's relatively stable over the three years, right? So I was quite fortunate for a number of reasons. I mean, well, maybe not fortunate, but I, I was that was able to work for me for a number of reasons. I, di I didn't have children, for example. For many of it, I, I was dog free, not unfortunately towards the end. It uh, extended my thesis writing quite a bit more. But, you know, I was able to take a drop in my wage. Some people might not be able to do that. And so it's, it's really worth thinking about whether you can maintain that level of salary of income for a few years and then maybe if say you have funding for three years there could be unfunded years at the end whilst you're writing up and that can be really challenging so the financial mm. side of it is not something to just do away with quickly in your in your thinking about this it's really something to, to spend the time to think about and finally, I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm conscious that I've been rambling for a long time, so bear with me on this one. But yeah, I would be remiss without saying this again. But you know, really talk to academics. I have had a particular pathway to get to where I am in academia, but people become academics via lots of different routes. Some are more research focused. I was a sort of more, some are more, you know, practitioner focused, you know, some have been practitioners for a long time and come in that way, you know, there's different ways of doing it. Many people come back to academia much later in life. 
there's no one way to become an academic. So it is worth talking to other people and to hearing how they became enthralled in this this strange system that is kind of academia. I mean, as I said, you know, I was kind of lucky. I, I didn't have to co- navigate sort of complicated visa processes and, and that drop in earnings was something I could do. I'm sure that there will be different challenges for different people thinking about this career path. And academia, like, you know, many professions, it has its foibles. You know, an ongoing industrial strike action is revealing of some of these issues, right? It can be rife with temporary contracts. Workloading can be a challenge. It can it can be very demanding. And also, like many professions, lots of some of these troubling practices can fall harder on particular persons. You know, there are pay gaps, there's precarity. And often this is felt by black or minority ethnic colleagues, women, those with disabilities, for example. And I mean, just consider that we have so few black professors here in the UK. You know, that is striking and and we shouldn't forget the inequalities in the system. Progress can be slow. You know, there's a huge desire to address and tackle some of these inequalities. All university departments now have EDI committees. Central universities have their strategies. But these are deep rooted issues. And it would be, as I say, remiss of me not to highlight that. You know, think about this and and go in with your eyes wide open. And university and college union or UCU has also lots of literature on, on some of these issues, which you might want to think about. But I want to end on a positive because, you know, it would be out of the podcast genre to not end on a positive (laughs) note, I think. I love Um, it, Faye. Yes, I love it. (laughs) You can't end on a a sad note. So, you know, there's lots of wonderful things about academia. You know, if you've got a curious mind, if you have questions that you want answers to, if you feel sort of passionate about particular topics. And of course, you enjoy talking to people about it. Very important. It's a chatty career I guess you could say um you know academia might be a, a a good shout there's a certain freedom and kind of independence that comes with thinking well why is that or you know why is it like this or how can we change that and I've sort of loved feminist theories I've loved its various methodologies and I, I love using that to challenge and to evaluate particular legal frameworks. And sometimes I do have to kind of pinch myself to think that I'm actually paid to do this, you know, sit and read some excellent feminist theories. It's a, yeah, many things to be grateful for and to be thankful about the the profession, I guess. That's brilliant, Faye. Thank you so much. I think it's really important to have a balance of highlighting some of those challenges, but you know, also talking about the positives. And I can tell sitting here listening, you know, how passionate you are about the career you've gone into. And that's, you know, that's really nice to hear. And I think it's really useful for our students to hear the journey as well. The reality Rachel, of it. I'm just in too deep. I'm just in too deep now, Rachel. That's it. You know, I've got to, I've got to be sold now. That's it. That's it. You're committed now, aren't you? But <laughs> yeah. I think it's, But I think you're realistic as well. I think you're realistic about the journey and you haven't sugarcoated it. You've, you know, said about the challenges, but I can tell that you are, there's a real passion and enthusiasm there, which I think, you know, that that's so nice to hear, but it's important for the job you're doing, isn't it? It's, you know, I think those skills, you need those skills in the work you're doing every day. So, yeah, I think that has been such a useful conversation. So thank you so much for your time today.
stories. Thank you for having me. I hope it was useful. I hope some people managed to get through all of it. I feel like I've been rambling for ages. So well done if you did, I guess. But anyway, thank you, Rachel. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And I think the lucky ones that do get through to the end, and I think they are, there will be a lot of them, I was going to say, I'm sure that they can connect with you on LinkedIn. And if they have any further questions, you know, Absolutely. like you were saying, the first day of your master's, reach out to the head of uh, law school. Maybe they could reach out, Faye, and ask you some questions if they yeah. have, um, you know, any additional questions to what yeah. we've talked about. Absolutely. Be bold. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah. Brilliant. Lovely. Thank right, thanks, Rachel. This was the Career Zone podcast brought to you by the University of Exeter Career Zone. Check out iTunes and Spotify to keep up with all of our regular releases. And if you'd like us to cover something else in another episode, just send us a message hashtag CareerZonePodcast at UOE CareerZone or at UOE Cornwall CareerZone on Instagram, and we'll follow up in one of the next episodes.